Leonard Lopate at Large, I'm Leonard Lopate. Late in the evening of April 20th, President Trump tweeted, quote, In light of the attack from the invisible enemy, as well as the need to protect the jobs of our great American citizens, I will be signing an executive order to temporarily suspend immigration into the United States. Exclamation point. And two days later, he signed the proclamation suspending entry of immigrants who present risk to U.S. labor market during the economy recovery following the COVID-19 outbreak. It wasn't the president's first initiative to use the pandemic as a reason for restricting immigration. He's also expanded travel restrictions, slowed down visa processing, and barred asylum seekers and undocumented immigrants from entering the country. But will any of those moves help to slow the spread of the virus or make it easier for unemployed Americans to find new jobs? Well, according to Sayub Bajwani, whose those actions won't save jobs and they will cost lives. Sayo Bajwani is an immigrant rights advocate who is founder and president of New American Leaders, recruits, trains, and supports movement leaders who run for office. And from 2002 to 2004, she served as New York's first commissioner of immigrant affairs. I'm very pleased to welcome Sayo Bajwani to our show now. Hello. Hi. Good afternoon, Leonard. Thanks for having me. Like many New Yorkers, you came here from elsewhere. You were born in India and raised in Belize. Indeed, but I've now made New York my home for about 30 years. Had you planned to return to Belize? (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, maybe. I I do have a plan to retire there and have a a beach bar, but I think that retirement is a long way away. Now, you founded New American Leaders, or NAL. Tell us about the organization and what led you to, to found it. Sure. Um, You know, I'll start. I mean, obviously, my lived experience as an immigrant uh, is a through line uh, in all my work. But you mentioned that I was commissioner of immigrant affairs, and that was in the few months following September 11, the attacks of September 11. And I had a very close firsthand experience about what it's like to be a policymaker uh, in a time when immigrants felt scared as well um, and vulnerable. And it was that experience that helped me to understand the difference between being on the outside versus being on the inside, right? Like there's a role for everybody, advocates um, and organizers. But when you're on the inside making policy with one decision, you can really change the course of people's lives. And so I started New American Meters as a result of that experience, knowing that people like me with lived experience could come in and help shape the policy environment so that it's more inclusive and equitable uh, for our immigrant communities. What are the biggest challenges for undocumented immigrants and refugees living in the United States right now? Do you have a sense of of what President Trump's rationale was for this uh, recent ban on immigrants? Well, we know that this administration has a you know diverse toolbox of white supremacy, right? And that you mentioned a whole range of policies that they've worked on uh, with Stephen Miller as an architect and Trump as the mouthpiece. Uh, they're able to rile up a base of white nationalists who then become kind of foot soldiers of, of an army that's really trying to scare and um, confuse immigrants, because I think th- these two things of being scared and being confused uh, are, there's a difference. Sometimes there's an overlap, but I, I want to talk briefly about that, because people who are undocumented are, or are living in a mixed-status family 
can be scared because of their own status. But then there are folks who, you know, might be in process for getting a work permit or a green card or citizenship. And the language, the rhetoric, the actual policies creates confusion for people. And so, I, you know, I'll just say a couple more things that the executive order is a pattern of policies that they throw red meat to their base, they incite fear in immigrant communities, and then they create chaos among those of us in civil society who are working with and serving these communities because we then have to work with them to ensure that they feel both psychologically as well as physically safe. The New York Times quotes an official who said that the administration's response to coronavirus represents Stephen Miller's wish list of anti-immigration measures that were formed within the first 67 months of, of Trump taking office. And the Times says that he has repeatedly, I'm quoting, repeatedly tried to use an obscure law designed to protect the nation from diseases overseas as a way to tighten the borders. Is coronavirus just another opportunity to advance the administration's anti-immigration agenda? Absolutely. I mean, I think that article affirms what many of us in the immigrant rights movement have known for some time and or have suspected. And I just, you know, I want to underline the fact that immigrants continue to be a political football in this administration as well as in previous administrations. I've been working in this community for many years, um, and I was commissioner now almost 20 years ago. It's hard to believe. And even then, you know, we had... uh, we had to work very hard uh, as a city to ensure that our immigrant residents felt protected while the federal government was uh, pushing back. So some people in New York will remember that we had an executive order on confidentiality that was signed by Mayor Koch in the 1980s. And that executive order was invalidated as a result of uh, a bill that Bill Clinton signed into law in 1996. And, you know, it's a long, convoluted story that I don't need to necessarily get into for for these purposes. But this kind of back and forth that our communities experience uh, of being told that they're welcome and that their work matters, but then being treated inhumanely um, is, is something that, unfortunately, communities are very familiar with. And so this thing about Stephen Miller, you know, it's just an affirmation of what we've known about this administration, but until we have a policy that protects immigrants who live in this country and know no other home, we're going to continue to have leaders who want to sow fear. So how has the pandemic affected immigrants and refugees who were planning to seek asylum in the United States? What actions have been taken to limit immigration in response to coronavirus? Well, my understanding is that even before this executive order, there were a number of provisions put into place that made it difficult to move any uh, adjustment of status. So as far as I understand, there's very little action being done and pending uh, pending applications for any kind of adjustment of status. I don't, um, I can't speak to the specific uh, policy areas, but I think that there wasn't, just like, you know, in the way that some of us, for example, learned how to adapt to doing remote work or remote learning with our kids, uh, the 
bureaucracy of the Trump administration hasn't made any attempts to appropriately address adjustment of status. So I'm, I feel people are very much in limbo. Um, and that limbo, you know, I, just to give an example of someone who might be in a particularly difficult situation, for example, if you are a victim of domestic violence and you might be interested in applying for uh, protection and a, a, a particular visa that um, is eligible, that victims of domestic violence are eligible for, you know, you may be in a position where you're uh, reluctant to um, report an incident of domestic violence, both because you're trying to protect your abuser, but also because you know that, um, or you're not sure what your pathway out is. Well, what are the, the long-term ramifications of blaming immigrants for the spread of COVID-19? Um, we've been hearing about a form of government harassment. Yeah, I mean, so let's, I think, name the fact that immigrants are frontline workers in both healthcare and delivery services, right? 17% of uh, healthcare workers are immigrants. Um, that's everything from doctors and nurses to assistants. 17% of grocery workers are immigrants. 18% of food delivery workers are immigrants. And so. Can I give other statistics? Sure. Um, that more than 36% of home health aides, 28% of physicians, and 22% of nursing assistants are immigrants. That's even higher, more impressive statistic. So when and and we're applauding those people every day. Um, right. uh, so uh, it's kind of odd that we're applauding them on the one hand and then uh, threatening them on the other. Yeah, well, there's this contradiction, right, that I think about valuing the work but not the people. Um, and then, of course, the Trump administration is full of contradictions, including saying that we're going to close borders but reopen states. And so, you know, I, you asked the question of how are immigrants being or what are the long-term impacts. And I think that what we find in the work with our movement leaders is that the number one reason the number one reason that people give when we ask, what do you think is your biggest challenge in running for office? The number one reason that people give is that they uh, feel that some aspect of who they are, some marker of their identity, is going to be a challenge. So they'll, they'll say their name, their head covering, their religion, their immigration status. So we already have uh, you know, data, both anecdotal and from all our participants that say that there is something about them that makes them feel like they don't belong, that they're not qualified to be a leader in this country. And so when you add to that the messages that we're hearing and this you know, constant drumbeat of anti-immigrant rhetoric and policy, uh, and, and you think about the psychological impact that working on the front lines um, is having on doctors and nurses and grocery workers, uh, then you have like multiple layers of trauma that our communities are experiencing. They don't feel safe. They don't feel welcome. They don't feel cared for. Um, and, and all of that psychological trauma, I think, carries forward into generations. You know, our young, my young person, my child, should feel as American and as anyone else. But if the leader of our country is sending the message that we're not uh, welcome and that we're not as American as everyone else, then it, it does create a psychological trauma. And then there's obvious, like, very real, um, you know, impacts on people's immigration status and what that means for their economic uh, 
economic conditions. And, and so I, I don't want to uh, gloss over, because we're here going to hear a lot of statistics about unemployment and lack of access to services, but I think that there's a deep psychological trauma that comes from not having a, you know, a core human need fulfilled. And that core human need of belonging and feeling safe um, is something that I think many immigrants in this country are, are lacking. And, and aren't uh, those healthcare workers and first responders, along with the, uh, the host of delivery people who are bringing uh, us meals, groceries, and other essential supplies while we're quarantined, um, uh, aren't they also at risk for contracting COVID-19 at a higher risk than uh, the rest of us? Yeah, I mean, they are among the most vulnerable, right, because of the level of exposure. And I think, frankly, you know, the level of... Uh, the limited level of concern that we have um, for them as people. Um, as I said, that there's a value on the work and, and not on the people. Um, so they are at risk and they are, uh, but they are also uh, most the most economically vulnerable. And so they have to continue going to these jobs. In New York City, they have to keep taking the subway, uh, putting themselves at, at further risk. And, you know, what my hope is, I mean, going back to the long-term issue, my hope is that as a result of this, we'll be able to, I mean, in the way that New York City started to recognize uh, first rep responders after September 11th, um, I think there was a very different relationship between your average New Yorker and first responders after September 11th. Um, hopefully, we'll, we won't forget uh, the people who got us through this crisis and put themselves at risk in the process. Well, many of the first responders after September 11th are now uh, coming down with all sorts of illnesses. They have been affected as well. We've seen high incidences of cancer, for example. Right. Um, I'm speaking with Sayu Bojwani. Uh, we're talking about the current circumstance for immigrants. Uh, this is WBAI in New York, 99.5 FM. I'm Leonard Lopate. The show is called Leonard Lopate at Large. Queens is the epicenter of this New York epicenter of the global pandemic. Why has that community been hit the hardest? Well, you know, some of the, I mean, I think that there's still data coming out about how certain parts of Queens are harder hit than others. Um, I think that one of the things is that the high concentration of frontline workers who live in that, in the area, the population density. Um, I, you know, I, I think we've been hearing lots of stories about uh, the way that people responded to the information in the first place, but also, um, and I, I want to be careful about this because it's, a lot of it is anecdotal, that um, there are repeated incidents of people who had severe flu-like symptoms in um, the later, in sort of late January, early February, and that were seeking out uh, health care and were being turned back. And so people were uh, ignored. Their symptoms were ignored. The severity of their symptoms were ignored. And by the time they were making it to the hospital the third or fourth time, they were uh, closer to dying than they would have been if they had gotten treatment originally. So um, I think that the value that was being placed on responding to certain people who were seeking health care was lower than um, should have been the case. Well, immigrants can be denied green cards if they currently use or might use government benefits. Uh, I'm yeah, assuming that stopped them from seeking health care. 
So do all charge. the immigrants on the front line of the pandemic have access to health care? Well, I think so. There's there are two ways of looking at that, right? One is who has access, and one and the other is who feels that they uh, should seek out those that access, right? So if you are, um, you know, if you're not someone who gets paid when you call out sick, um, if you're not someone who knows how to navigate the health care system, I mean, I think there's an assumption that if people have the right, that they will exercise that right, but. A, we don't have as many people who have access to health care, and B, we don't have enough people who feel that they have uh, what they need in order to go and access that health care, right? So if I'm a grocery store worker, I'm not likely to be getting paid sick leave. And so I may, you know, go to work with a few sort of less severe symptoms because I can make it there, or I might wait until things are really... Uh, unmanageable before I go and seek out health care. And then the public charge issue is very real. But I, you know, I go back to that point that I made earlier, that that part of what we have done very successfully in this country, and especially so under the Trump administration, is to create real confusion and fear among immigrant communities about what their rights are in this country and what the, the real information is rather than the perceived threat. Are immigrants safe from law enforcement in, in hospitals? Well, you, you've had, um, you know, we now have the Trump administration talking about uh, not providing certain services to cities that are, you know, that he calls so-called sanctuary cities. Mm-hmm. Um, we are a sanctuary city in New York City. Uh, I mentioned that back in 2002 when I was commissioner, that was that also was under debate, in part because we were in a post-September 11th climate. I mean, the underlying point of all of this is that there's any excuse that we use to find a group of people who are largely innocent to blame for something, and that the, the brunt of that blame falls on black and brown communities and on the most vulnerable within those communities. Well, the president is blaming China and Asians for much of this, and yet the immigration policies are affecting people from all over the world, places where uh, there hasn't even been much of a a coronavirus outbreak. Well, and the fact is that we are exporting the virus in some ways, right? I mean, you've there was a story a couple of weeks ago about uh, us deporting folks to Guatemala who had the virus. And so um, there is there is a tendency to think of ourselves as independent from. I mean, I think it's both one of the things that's unique but also challenging, uh, a unique opportunity but also a challenge for us as Americans, that, that independence is a highly valued trait. But in overemphasizing our independence, we lose sight of how interdependent we are. That there, I mean, this is why the point of opening up states but closing borders, you know, it's not as if people from New York are not going to cross the border and go to another state um, or vice versa. And, and so the, long, the, the one big lesson that I hope we learn from this pandemic is how connected we all are. Uh, and how necessary it is for us to recognize that in order to be responsible and, uh, and you know, um, stem the flow of the virus. I've heard uh, someone from Illinois, a uh, politician from Illinois, uh, worry about uh, the fact that uh, their neighbor, uh, 
Missouri has very different uh, rules as far as uh, uh, people being able to uh, to return to work, for example, because a lot of people from Illinois work in St. Louis, so and they go back and forth. So <laughs> borders don't mean all that much in this country. People uh, in, in states next to Georgia are um, going to have to deal with uh, Georgia's rules. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, this is a moment where we're being called to have a values conversation as opposed to just a tactical conversation, right? I mean, when I wear a mask, it's not just to protect myself. It's also to protect others. And I think that idea of, you know, masking for a friend or masking for the community is uh a conversation that I think we're all going to have to get comfortable with. It's not that comfortable to wear a mask for hours mm -hmm. on end. When Seems up my glasses. Yeah, but you know, it's um, it's something that we have to get used to, not just to protect ourselves. And and so I say values based because you know it's valuing people, it's valuing our communities, it's valuing. Uh, the interdependence and all of those are, um, as someone who is an immigrant and who grew up in a in a kind of more communal culture, uh, I'm able to see both sides of this, right? To see that look, I, many of us build a life in America because we want that independence, right? We value what America offers, the independence to make it big, the independence to work hard and do something different than your parents' generation did. But Alongside that, I think there has to be a, a bit of a shift to um, to accept some more communal values uh, if we're going to make it through this together. Now, President Trump has ordered meat plants to reopen. Are they largely staffed by immigrants? Yeah, that, I mean, that's a great example, you know, to say that meat processing is essential and not recognize that that workforce is largely immigrant uh, is it's just one of those great contradictions within the administration. And um, I, I don't know where they think they're going to land on, on that one. Um, and maybe the assumption is that most of those folks are documented, but we don't necessarily know that for sure. But also, I think there is a devaluing of those workers, right? So we're going to get the meat process regardless of what that might mean for those workers' lives. And Again, it comes back to this issue of devaluing people uh, just in order to get the service going or the economy going. Well, the working conditions in those plants, uh, uh, we've heard, uh, mean that uh, plant workers really don't have much ability to practice social distancing, and many of them uh, have uh, no PPE, personal protection equipment. According to reports, workers in bee plants are told to come into work even if they're sick. So what does that mean for their families and communities? Hasn't there been a, a spike in the communities in which these facilities are located? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think that there is a, um, I think we, when you have these conditions, right, like we have not valued public health um, as a society. We've not placed, we've not made it possible for everyone to access health care. We've not made it a part of the culture to have things like paid seat leave. Part of the reason they're, they are going to go in when they're sick is because they need the money. And so when you take this society that has these deep flaws and then basically throw fire onto the flames or whatever that expression is, um, you're, you're 
adding fuel to the fire, I guess I should say that that's you, you know, the, that's are already, cliche, yeah. thank you, um, still an immigrant, forget all those phrases. But the, the thing is that yeah. you, you're asking someone who already feels vulnerable, either because of their immigration status or because of their economic status or both, that to uh, follow the rules that uh, didn't never have served them, right? And and then um, I can't. I you asked a very specific question, which I'm not avoiding, but I don't know specific data around incidents that that have occurred um, in meat processing plants. We know the general data. We know that those places are considered unsafe, and um, and, and then, again, people come down with COVID nineteen as a result. Right. Well, and, according and to then, the Go ahead. So I just the, this idea that there is a person. I mean, I'll the, the idea that people are interconnected is seems to be foreign when you're thinking about this individual worker and the service that they're providing. But there was an, also a very intentional move by the Trump administration, um, which was then you know, placed into the stimulus package that some of your listeners may have heard about, which is that if you are um, living in a mixed-status household, even if you are a tax-paying American citizen, you are not eligible for a stimulus check. So that means that I could be um, paying taxes, uh, working. I could be a DACA recipient even um, and working and paying taxes. I could be a DACA recipient who is a healthcare worker, but because I live in a household where, say, my parents might be undocumented, I don't, I'm not eligible for the stimulus check. So this kind of intentionality around it, because you could have said, like, if I was uh, making that, that policy, I would say anybody who paid taxes in 2019 whose income was below a certain level qualifies for a stimulus check because undocumented immigrants also pay taxes using the taxpayer identification number. But instead, it was it was delineated that only people with Social Security numbers and only people uh, and people in mixed status households could not access that check. So there is really deliberate intentionality around who to exclude from a system in which. I'm already participating. I'm already working. I'm paying taxes. I'm paying into the system, but then the system is is intentionally excluding me. Well, talking about that interconnectedness, according to the Atlantic, our economy will be quote further divided along its widening class fault. Those who can control their contacts with others and those who cannot. Um, do you think that this pandemic has made much of the public? more aware of the essential role that immigration plays in keeping our economy going? And and how will the, a drop-off in immigration affect the economy's ability to recover? Well, there's no, um, you know, having been here for so long and worked in, in these communities for so long, I, um, I don't like to be pessimistic, but I'm not that optimistic that we're going to remember the value um, that these workers have um, after things start to, quote-unquote, get back to normal, whatever that is. What I do think is that, for example, the leaders we are working with, who are working uh, as state and local elected officials or planning to run for those positions, are a critical part of changing the environment, right? I mean, I think we have to change policy work to change policy as well as change behavior, but policy will help, right? Policy that protects workers uh, is a very big step towards making 
the individual worker, their families feel in control. So you, you talked about, you know, you use the word control and how some of us have control and some of us don't. There's also some of us who uh, don't feel that we have control because of some of the things we've been talking about. Like you have a worker who feels they have to show up to work or they won't get paid, right? People are not paying their babysitters or their housekeepers. If there has been no adjustment in your own income, but you've decided not to pay your housekeeper or your babysitter, then what is that about, right? I mean, this person is coming into your home. Um, And so I think that women, largely women who are working in the domestic worker industry, you know, may feel that they don't have control over their lives because they don't, they don't get to decide whether they get paid or not. Uh, they may not want to make the choice of not coming in if they're sick. Um, and so I don't think that policy issues like that, I don't think that creating a system that values people's health and humanity should be left up to individual employers. Well, the, president has said that, the president has said that immigration poses risks to the U.S. labor market, but you say that the ban won't help unemployment, but will cost lives. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're going to, people, because people will be scared, they will not access the health care services that they're entitled to. And, and that's in the states where, you know, states have said that they're going to cover undocumented workers, for example. Um, if people feel scared that they or someone in their family is going to be deported, then they are less likely to access a whole range of services. I mean, I think that, so in New York, I believe it's 6% of New York families are mixed-status families. So when we think about individuals, you know, they're not just living here by themselves all the time. They're usually embedded in a family or in a community. And so this idea that, like, we're going to suddenly... um, that people, who, whoever is sick, is suddenly going to show up to the hospital just because they're eligible is, uh, is really inaccurate. Like, people are scared. They're scared for their own health, but they're also scared for the communities and the families that they, they live in. And so if the message that they're getting, they get the message from the president uh, that they should be afraid. They get the message, by the way, from Governor Cuomo that we don't have enough resources in our budget to uh, do what California is doing, which is to support its undocumented workforce. Uh, There isn't a sense if you were a New York State resident or even a New York City resident who is undocumented or living in a mixed status family that you can really feel safe physically, economically, or psychologically. I don't think any of our leaders are sending that message. You're listening to, go ahead, finish. I was just going to say that the work of protecting those workers is um, and those individual residents is falling on nonprofit organizations and foundations. You're listening to London Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM.
And before we return to my conversation with Seo Bajwani, I'd like to take a moment to thank some of the people who have already contributed to WBAI in the name of the show during this, uh, our spring pledge drive. Uh, it began uh, earlier this week, and uh, it's going to go on for a little while, unfortunately, because the need is so great. Robin Appel of Shoreham, New York, thank you so much. Mimi Dates of Morningside Heights, a big thanks to you as well. And to Wendy Danette of the Upper West Side and Renee Melanson-Brown of the East Side Manhattan, thank you for becoming BAI buddies. And I look forward to speaking uh, with you at the My Dinner with Leonard special event WBI is offering to all new sustaining members of the station who sign up in the name of this show. And I'm joined now by my executive producer, Jesse Lent, who'll fill you in on all the details about uh, My Dinner with Leonard. Uh, Jesse, Hi, uh, why don't you tell them what that event is all about? Well, first, I want to say happy Giving Tuesday to you, Leonard. Uh, you know, you're in your home studio. I'm in my home in the interest uh, of social distancing. But, uh, you know, Reggie's back at WBAI holding down the fort. Uh, We're so grateful to him. Thank you. We really are. Thank you, Reggie, and to all the op staff. We, we really can't say it enough. It's it, They are the ones putting themselves at risk to continue to bring you this program. And just to get back to what I was saying about Giving Tuesday, now I know that's something that people might associate with November, uh, but Giving Tuesday is uh, – there's a global Giving Tuesday movement for today, May 5th, launched as a response to the needs – caused by COVID-19, uh, our show, our station directly affected by the pandemic, of course, uh, as a listener-sponsored radio station, uh, you know, we, we, a lot of the cliches that are said when people raise money on public radio stations are, are actually not cliches for us. Things like, we can't make it without your help. Well, a lot of NPR stations, with all due respect to the, to the great programming on NPR, uh, those are corporate uh, stations that have corporate underwriting. WBAI has none of them. Well, they them. also take ads, Actually, Jesse. And they Some of them ads. take ads. We don't. So, things like, every donation counts. Okay, well, if you're a big uh, uh, public radio station with several million dollars in endowments and corporate underwriting, I'm sorry, every donation is not going to make or break that station. With us, it actually does. The difference between five donations and ten donations, the difference between one, you know, $100 donation, we feel it here uh, at this station. So I, I'm going to get into some of the, something really exciting we're offering in a second. But before I do, Leonard, we should probably give out the number uh, just at the top right here. So get your okay. pen. It's 516-620-3602. Or you can go to the website, give to WBAI. That's give, then the number two, WBAI.org. Uh, and, and Jesse, I want I wanted to point out that because of the pandemic, a lot of people are suddenly on tighter budgets. And we are, have some people who are cutting back on their support to the station. Uh, BAI buddies who have been forced to to discontinue uh, their support. So we need to replenish that, and that's uh, an, an important part of what we're we're trying to do right now. Exactly. You know, another thing that 
that might be a cliche in some cases, but it's not with us, is community radio, which is what WBAI is and what our show is. We are a community. Leonard Lopate listeners are a community, just as WBAI listeners of all the different amazing shows on the net, on the station are, are one community. Uh, but as a community, now more than ever, we've got to help each other out, right? We know uh, that, uh, that, that a lot of people just aren't in a position to, to feel secure enough to, to contribute. And, and believe me, I can relate. But if you are one of the lucky ones right now whose uh, finances are secure, we'd ask that you step up and, and take over for someone who's had to back out, which is something that we face that all uh, public radio stations have faced. I, I think I saw something like 60% of of of, uh, of people who donate to public radio across the country uh, has dropped since the pandemic. Um, I could be a little off in that number. It was a couple weeks no, ago. That's when a I number saw I've that. heard. But yeah, yeah. So we don't want to be all doom and gloom here, people. Uh, in order to uh, make this kind of uh, well, I hate to say fun in the light of a pandemic and so many people hurting, so much tragedy. But we want to make this fun drive a little bit of fun, right? Put the fun in fun drive, so to speak. And so we are offering something that we've never done, and to the best of my knowledge, uh, Leonard has never done, which is something we're calling a My Dinner with Leonard. So anyone who becomes – well, I shouldn't say anyone because two of the spots are already filled. The next eight people who become BAI buddies in the name of Leonard Lopate at large – uh, will be invited to a Zoom call with the man himself. Uh, I, I should say one-on-one, -on -one, but I guess uh, ten-on-one would be more accurate. But you will be able to ask Leonard anything you want uh, about the shows he's done, about his life outside of the show. Uh, many, I, I can tell you uh, from working with Leonard, a lot of amazing stories as someone who has uh, traveled the world and, and not just um, – through the guests that he's had, but physically traveled the world, but also, of course, has so many stories uh, and so much knowledge. So if you're a fan of Leonard Lopate or even new to the show, but you just have something you'd like to ask him about or just really want to spend a little time uh, virtually, should I say, uh, to become uh, – spend a little time with other Leonard Lopate uh, at-large listeners with your community – this is the way you can do that. So when this is gone, it's gone. I don't know if we can if, – if, if I think this might be it. I, we can't have Leonard uh, uh, Zooming every night which, while he's trying to prepare for this show. But this is a one-time thing. Um, and, and Leonard, I, I, you said that you're looking forward to this, right? You want to meet some of these I people, love right? meeting listeners. But uh, I want to point out what a BAI buddy is as a sustaining member, and we're asking you – to consider giving $10 a month or $15 a month or $20 a month or whatever you're comfortable with uh, until you uh, decide that you want to cancel. But we hope that you'll stay with us for a while. Uh, and uh, we, as, as Jesse's been pointing out, we uh -huh. are inviting 10 people who become BAI buddies, sustaining members, to join us in a, in a Zoom dinner or meeting anyway. We'll uh, drink wine or whatever, seltzer, whatever you're comfortable with, and, and uh, have a nice chat for an hour or so. So I'm looking forward to meeting all of the people who've contributed. 
Again, you can ask me anything you'd like about my 43 years of radio, the people I've met, hundreds of really interesting people, thousands actually. But be sure to also make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopez at large, because uh, uh, it's it's great to support the whole station. But if you want to be part of this uh, dinner, uh, then you have to uh, do it in the name of Leonard Lopez at large. Is there anything else we have to say about this, Jesse, other than give out the phone number again? Yeah, so the phone number is 516-620-3602. One last time, 516-620-3602. Or you can go to give to wbai.org. That's give, then the number 2wbai.org. And all I'd like to say is, you know, it's just uh, – uh, at, at the at the risk of sounding a little hokey, it, it really it moves me to hear the people, uh, you know, to hear you just saying the names of some of the people stepping up because you're really the only thing keeping this show on the air, uh, and you're in our minds and in our hearts as we're preparing these segments. You know, we want to give you an hour that really gives you something to think about. And that hopefully you'll be thinking about uh, throughout your day. We're trying to find the right balance of doing shows like today that are directly about the impact of the pandemic with other shows that are an escape for, for an hour. And we hope that we're uh, we hope that we're pleasing you. We hope we fi- we're finding the right balance there, walking the tightrope, so to speak. Tomorrow's and show so- is not about coronavirus, but about another shocking thing that happened uh, in in uh, recent history in in this country well, that people probably are totally unaware of. Today's show, yes. Well, I guess I mean more generally speaking, it's from the fallout of the pandemic, yeah. right? What the president has done under yes. at least under the auspices of this pandemic. And again, that's something that we're doing our best to do is is find a different take because we know that we're all pretty much saturated with news of COVID. And, and so for an hour interview, we're trying to do something a little bit different. So I want to let so, you get back to that interview, yeah. Leonard, but it's, it's, um, it's just a, I, I just want to send a big thank you to all of our listeners uh, and, and everyone who's contributed during this drive uh, in the name of the show. Thanks from all of us. And thank you, Jesse. Uh, this is Leonard Lopez at Lodge on WBAI. New York 99.5 FM. I want to thank our guests for being patient while we're doing that, while we did that. Uh, She is immigration, immigrant rights advocate, Sayu Bojwani, uh, the founder and president of New American Leaders. Uh, Welcome back. You were talking about uh, how asylum seekers are being turned back to their home countries and bringing the virus with them. But how many asylum seekers are in detention prisons at the moment? Yeah, the conditions in the detention prisons um, continue to be horrific, and I feel like we're not talking about those enough. I mean, we did a visit with our organization and some elected officials in the fall of last year um, to the El Paso Juarez border, and, you know, the same conditions that exist in some of these detention centers uh, exist in the housing facilities for farm workers and, and, you know, we were talking about meat processing plants as well. Like people are in crowded, unsanitary conditions. There's not always running water. Um, the facility I visited had um, very limited running water and had uh, porta potties outside. I mean, these are not conditions that make 
for, um, you know, we talk about how you need to wash your hands and all the things that we're advising people to do, we're not making sure that they are possible uh, to do in, in the detention centers. Um, the other thing that I've been seeing now is that there are people who are returning voluntarily, right? So we're, we've talked a little bit about the workforce and the impact that we're going to have if people start to feel like they're scared um, of either getting the virus or being deported, that they're returning to their countries, um, their home countries. Now, that's not always possible, right? We're talking about people who might be able to return to uh, to Mexico or other Central American countries. So I think there there is going to be an impact, which is not unintentional. There, there is, you know, we started this show by talking about what the Trump administration is doing. And so I think there's very much a desire to suppress uh, immigration, to also suppress the census count, which will have an impact on the resources available to localities. Um, and so to dismiss this as just... Um, capricious, which it is sometimes on on Twitter, um, I think is uh, we do ourselves an injustice to to dismiss these things as capricious because they're all part of a very intentional uh, plan, you know, whether it's Stephen Miller or Donald Trump and, and everyone around them to create fear and uh, hurt immigrant communities and black and brown communities more generally. Now, the president uh, called COVID-19 the Chinese virus, and according to Stop AAPI Hate, an organization that's been tracking self-reported incidents, more than 1,100 physical and verbal attacks against Asian Americans have been documented since late March. And then this past weekend, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and then the president claimed that COVID-19 came from a Chinese laboratory uh, I just read a headline that suggests that uh, there's a fear that we might up might wind up at war with China. I mean, I'm not even sure how to respond to that because the amount of uh, just ridiculous information, if you can, you can't even call it information, the ridiculous statements that they make um, that, again, are capricious but then have an impact, right? Um, and so I'm part of a, a Facebook group um, about anti-Asian bias. And it's just, it's what we have seen in the last few years is that the Trump administration has given permission to the worst of our society to emerge, Right? So it's not just people who are carrying tiki torches, but it's your neighbor, it's your coworker, it's things that are passed off as jokes, but that really, you know, hurt the individuals who are hearing them. And it furthers the sense that we are not considered of this place. Um, and, you know, Asian, some Asian Americans have been here for generations. Chinese Americans built our railroads. I mean, this is not like we're not talking about new immigrants, and it's also not acceptable for it to be happening to new immigrants. But this idea of us and them is being deeply fostered by the administration. And it wasn't all that long ago that we uh, changed our immigration policies to actually allow Asians and people from uh, Southern Europe and uh, from Eastern Europe to come here. So where this is uh, nothing new uh, in America. But I, I have just a few moments left. I want to talk a bit about your organization, New American Leaders. What is your Ready to Rise initiative? And what is your boss lady training program all about? Um, 
So I'll just say quickly that our our work is all about giving people the tools that they need to run for office, and both programs you described fit within that. So Ready to Rise and Boss Ladies are specifically for women. Um, Ready to Rise is for women who want to run for office. Boss Ladies is for women who want to work on campaigns. Uh, There are three things that our training does. One is it uh, gives you the tools that you need to tell your story, and it places the immigrant narrative within the American story so that when we talk about ourselves as immigrants, um, we're also claiming our Americanness. So helping people tell their story. The second thing is helping people understand how to do what we call expand the electorate, right, which is that you want to knock on the doors of people who have never before voted or who are not regular or what we call prime voters because by bringing them in, you um, are changing the equation uh, with which you might be able to win. And then thirdly, we're helping folks think about, you know, a lot of our the folks we train are coming from working class backgrounds, they're first-generation immigrants or first-generation college students, and we don't want money to be a barrier. Um, we don't want them to feel that money is a barrier to running, and so we work with them on their what we call their money story. Um, it's always uncomfortable to ask for money. It's especially hard right now, but they're learning um, how to see, you know, how to engage voters uh, as small-dollar donors, and helping. we're helping them see that the investment that a voter or a donor makes is not just in the individual, but it's in advancing the needs of their community. So there's a range of trainings that we do, but they all, um, the underlying values are that we already have what it takes to be the leaders that this country needs, and that our leadership is going to help create the America that many of us, you know, really struggled to get to or are struggling to stay in. Siseu Bojwani is the founder and head of New American Leaders. She is the author of People Like Us, the new wave of candidates knocking at democracy's door. And she was uh, named one of the three people to watch uh, in 2019 by CQ Roll Call. And I thank you so much for being on our show today. Thanks for having me. And if you if you have a minute, I'd love to just say that individual I things don't have that a minute. can do. Okay. Good night. Well, thank you. Wait, wait, wait. People, how well, you do they get have in touch with you? Sorry? Oh, people can get in touch with me um, at, on Twitter, at Sayu Bojwani, that's B-H-O-J-W-A-N-I. Our organization is newamericanleaders.org, and they can reach me through the website. Okay, thank you again. Uh, That brings us to the end of today's show. My special thanks to Susie Stoltz, who prepared this segment. If you've discovered our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast, and you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter show pages. Also, you can visit our website, letterglobeatlarge.com, where you'll find links to all of our past shows. And if you'd like to comment on this or any of our past shows, you could always reach me by email at leonardlopate at wbai.org. As I mentioned earlier, WBAI is in a very difficult position because of the pandemic. And if you value the kind of informative, in-depth interviews that we bring you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., I hope that you'll go right now to our website, give to wbaiorg That's give, the number 2, wbaiorg or call 516-620-3602 and help keep this 100% listener-supported radio station alive in New York 
and throughout the tri-state area. We don't take ads or even foundation grants. We rely solely on our listeners for our support. I know that many of you have generously contributed to the station in the past, but even if you're already a member of WBAI, we would ask you to consider offering us a little extra help during this pandemic when funding has become so much more difficult. Uh, the station is currently offering, among other things, WBAI face masks for a contribution of $35. So it's a great way to protect yourself while telling the world what radio station you like best. And although $35 may not seem like a large amount. Uh, those contributions, those donations can add up. Every 60 masks we sell raises $2,100 for the station. So we really hope that you'll consider it, especially now uh, during this pandemic when we are a source of, of information that you're not hearing elsewhere. Um, we need you now more than ever and uh, people are telling us that they need us now more than ever. And we would like you to stay safe. So um, get your protective mask with the WBAI logo emblazoned on the front today. Again, the number 516-620-3602. Or you can go online to give to WBAI.org. That's give and the number 2WBAI.org. I really hope that you'll do it uh, at this time, uh, at this uh, time of our moment of need. Uh, we would love to be able to return to normal broadcasting, although uh, we are we do see ourselves as a, a kind of uh, a, uh, a respite at times from all the constant talk about the same one thing, as terrible as that thing is. Again, the number 516-620-3602 or online give to wbai.org whether you're getting the mask or you're becoming a bai buddy we thank you from all of us for keeping community radio alive in new york city and uh, we hope you'll join us tomorrow when kate matthews alex glustrom and daniel bennett will discuss their new documentary a shocking documentary called mossville when great trees fall so um, i hope to see you then again the number one more time, 516-620-3602. Please make that call right now, and thank you.